Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Well Women Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Laura Pfeiffer. Today I wanted to do an episode that is a little bit more personal to me. I know a lot of women probably have experienced this and if you follow me on Instagram and have seen my highlights then you have heard me talk all about this. Um, Well not this specifically but you've definitely heard my experiences with respect to this topic and so this is something I wanted to talk about today just to kind of shed some awareness, shed some light to something that I think is not often spoken about, and that's childbirth trauma. And so for those of you who haven't seen my Instagram stories or seen my highlights, I will just kind of go over my birth story and why I found it really traumatic. And then I want to go into some of the areas of healthcare where I think are lacking. I'll go into some of the research and hopefully it's something that um, people who have been through some sort of childbirth trauma themselves can relate to or that they can use as a source of comfort that they aren't the only ones experiencing that. Or if someone you know has had a traumatic birth or something that they determine as a traumatic birth, which you will find out is really the definition of traumatic birth. It's always the woman's perception of what happened, regardless of what anyone else thinks about that, um, that you can just reach out and make sure that they are um, fully getting through that trauma that they've experienced. And so with my birth story, I ended up having, um, kind of skipping to the end, I ended up having uh, vaginal birth, um, really minimal tearing. So that was really lucky. I didn't need to have an episiotomy. I only needed to have one stitch. And my baby boy is healthy and doing well. So from that perspective, you can kind of say, oh, well, it doesn't really seem like your birth would be traumatic. You had your baby vaginally. He was healthy and everybody was healthy and fine. Recovery physically for me was not an issue um, because I had him vaginally and barely had any tearing. It was more of a matter of a little bit of back pain from my epidural. Um, I have some pubic bone pain that I've suffered from or suffered with uh, throughout kind of the entire course of recovery pretty much. But I mean, recovery wasn't bad either. I worked through it. I didn't have any surgery to recover from. So that is always beneficial. But where my childbirth trauma per se came from was really the whole experience of labor and delivery. So I'll kind of go back to the beginning. I had my due date of November 14th, 2019. And on the 7th, I started having, um, 7th of November, I started having cramping and I was kind of randomly sporadically throughout the day, I would have cramping and I didn't really know what to make of it because again, uh, new mom, first time mom, this was my first pregnancy, first experience with all of these feelings. So I didn't really know what to think of it. And so on that Wednesday, I kind of went through the day with having intermittent cramping. That Wednesday night on the 7th, I didn't really sleep because I had cramping throughout the night, went to bed and I woke up with what I thought was my water breaking. Um, So that really scared me. I called my midwife and they told me that if I thought my water had broken, I could come to the hospital and they would check so they could confirm kind of where we were at. Uh, Ended up going to the hospital and they tested it 
the fluid three times and said that it wasn't my water breaking. It was not amniotic fluid. So they just kind of sent me home and said, just keep keep doing what you're doing. Um, take a gravel so you can sleep and, and just kind of continue on. So that was, we were at the hospital the Wednesday night. Uh, we went at one o'clock in the morning. We ended up getting home at five o'clock in the morning on the Thursday. I ended up taking a gravel and getting some sleep until nine o'clock when I was woken up the Thursday morning. So now we're on to um, the 7th of November. And sorry, the Wednesday was the 6th. So now we're on to the 7th of November. And um, this is the Thursday. And so I got woken up with these cramps. And these cramps kind of persisted throughout the day. Again, they were, it was more just really bad back pain. And so I was told not to time anything, that I wasn't in labor, that it was just cramps, that I should just kind of ignore it and try to go out go on with my day so I tried to do that and that was seeming to be more and more difficult as the day went on I ended up calling my midwives again and they said you know it's just cramps this is what the end of pregnancy is like and get used to it and get ready for it to be just really crampy going forward Um, they actually stayed on the phone with me through a couple of these quote-unquote cramps and they told me that it didn't sound like I was in labor so again don't time it have a bath do all the things that can relax you and help you kind of get through the next little bit so this is all of Thursday. Um, as Thursday went on, I kind of got, things got more and more intense. I ended up calling my mom because she lives an hour away. And I, this was around like 5 p.m. I said, you know what? I don't really know what this is, but I think that you should probably come here so that we can kind of go through this together. So she ended up coming over and she was getting a little bit concerned because my pain seemed to be getting worse. And so by the time she started timing, things were about two and a half minutes apart, whatever these things were. And so I ended up actually going to the hospital on my own terms because I was told again and again not to. And um, when I got to the hospital, they actually ended up admitting me um, because I was in fact in labor. And so that was a little bit discouraging because I think I felt like I wasn't being heard. And because I am an anxious person as it is, my worst fear, um, being a new mom, being a first-time mom, was um, going into labor and having a baby in the car or having a baby at home where I hadn't planned on doing that. So, and I think a lot of new moms can relate to that feeling, that feeling of being out of control. Labor and delivery is something that you really have zero control over. So it's just one of those things that people who go with the flow probably have an easier time with and I'm not one of those people so I ended up going to the hospital they admitted me and they did a check and they were really really shocked when they found out that I was only one centimeter dilated but I was 90% effaced and so that was really interesting for them and they kind of felt confused and asked me did you take anything to induce labor did you drink castor oil what did you do that kind of brought this process on I said absolutely nothing because I would never want to bring on this kind of pain, um, especially with my job and my background. I I wouldn't be one of those people that's drinking castor oil. So um, I said I hadn't done that, but they had asked me if I had any procedures on my cervix. And what actually had come up is that I have actually had colposcopies in the past, which had caused some scar tissue around my cervix. So what was happening is I was actually having contractions. I was, my cervix was thinning, but it actually wasn't opening. And so they needed to assist in that. And so she kind of started doing that to break down the scar tissue manually, but uh, that was extremely painful as you can imagine. So they said, you know what, we're going to admit you and we're going to get an epidural going so that we can start to kind of manually move things along 
So um, a couple hours went by, I got admitted. Uh, they wanted me to walk around a bit first before admitting me and putting an epidural on because they wanted to make sure that I was going to, in fact, progress because an epidural, as you know, can start to slow things down. So I got my epidural um, and I had really bad back labor. So the pain was excruciating. Um, so I got my epidural. Things were okay at first, but uh, they only ended up, because I moved during the epidural, go figure, um, they only ended up being able to freeze half of my body. So the right side was frozen. The left side was not. And that was okay at first. Um, but then as labor went on, I wasn't progressing any further. And my baby's heart rate dropped. And he had a ton of meconium. So right off the bat, I was told that when I was going to give birth, regardless of how it happened and when it happened, I would need to have a respiratory therapist, a NICU nurse, and a pediatrician in the room to take the baby right away because he did have so much meconium and that was obviously dangerous to his health. So there was a little bit of anxiety put on me there. Uh, they did everything they could to move me in different positions over the next little bit. Uh, and then I was put, I, w I had a Foley catheter put in permanently because they told me that I would in fact have to have an emergency C-section so that I would they were prepping me for an emergency C-section this entire time so because of that I wasn't able to drink any water I wasn't able to have any food so I was already anxious I was hungry I was thirsty and they were pumping me with fluid so I wasn't dehydrated but your mouth gets really really dry when you're mouth breathing and you have anxiety and um, so the whole experience was pretty wild and overwhelming I then had to have uh, the OB come in for a consult and she actually ended up breaking my water and seeing how much meconium was there. She put me on IV antibiotics because she thought that it might have been an infection. The baby's heart rate still wasn't coming up. So again, she had the conversation with me about the possibility and the probability of likely having an emergency C-section. So obviously I went through hours and hours thinking I would have to have a C-section and this was my new reality and that was a scary thing to feel and I was also really scared for my baby and my baby's well-being. Eventually things were not changing. Uh, the situation was not changing. His heart rate was low and I was freaking out so they ended up transferring me to the care of the OBs so I was with only nurses and OBs and I had my midwife as kind of just my coach my personal coach there so that was really helpful in that respect um, then they put me on Pitocin which as anybody knows who has been on Pitocin it that increases your contraction so it makes things a lot more intense um, and so then I had to have someone come in and top up my epidural because the one-sided epidural was no longer sufficing and then so this was all Thursday night into Friday and I ended up having my baby vaginally um, at 12.54 p.m. on Friday, November 8th. So that's kind of my story um, because we had to have so many interventions, the transfer of care, the uh, possibility of an emergency surgery was kind of looming over me the entire time. It was really, really tough. And now talking about it, it feels kind of like a distant memory because right now I'm three months out talking about it. Uh, but shortly after my labor and delivery, I couldn't even tell anyone the story without tearing up. Um, if you watch my Instagram stories that are on my Instagram and my highlights, you'll actually notice that it, it is a little bit more emotional than what you're hearing now because I've kind of talked through it. I've gotten through it and I've moved forward past it. But a lot of people hold a lot when it comes to childbirth and childbirth trauma and just the feelings of being out of control. Some people feel like they don't 
um, they're not fully listened to. It might be the birth that they hadn't really planned for. And in my situation, I really had no plan. So going in with it with no plan was kind of my best plan. And I think that actually made things a lot better than they would have gone had I come in with this amazing elaborate plan of how I wanted things to go. Because truly my pregnancy was completely normal. And I went so far as to not even bring a hairbrush as crazy as that sounds to the hospital because I didn't even think that I would be there long enough to need to shower and brush my hair and and all those things. So that was pretty a pretty wild experience and a pretty unexpected experience and then layer on the couple days before actually having the baby of no sleep and then you have the baby and you're exhausted and you're in this hospital in this environment with a new baby and you are not sleeping again so you go into raising an infant three days sleep deprived and it really sets you up for um, failure so to speak and so that's one of the reasons why I want to talk today about childbirth trauma because um, unknowingly around one third of women are known to experience trauma while giving birth. A negative experience in childbirth is associated with chronic maternal morbidities and that includes postpartum mental health problems, depression, and PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Poor mental health in the postnatal period, so after giving birth, can alter a woman's sense of self. It can disrupt family relationships. And difficulties with early mother-baby bonding can negatively influence a child's social, emotional, and mental development. So that is something that is so important to talk about because it's not only the mother that's being impacted directly, but it's the family and ultimately the child indirectly and directly that is being impacted by a mother's birth experience alone. Birth trauma has been associated with medical interventions and the type of birth and has been defined as a perception or of actual or threatened injury or death to the mother or her baby. So as you can see, it's really in the eyes of the beholder. So if you feel like someone's story doesn't sound traumatic, it really depends on the circumstances that the woman went through in order to define it as traumatic. And so this can be due to a perceived lack of control, um, a perceived lack of involvement in decision making. And that can have to do with the care providers, um, the doctors that the mother is dealing with, and it can have to do with the surroundings, the environment, again, what she thought was going to be her plan, how close is that to the actual plan. Um, interestingly enough, a study found that the strongest predictor of developing birth-related PTSD was interpersonal difficulties with care providers, in particular those experiencing lack of support. So there was a common theme in the research I looked into in childbirth, and it found that the uh, most of the women, uh, when they explained their experiences in childbirth, really it had nothing to do with the pain. It had nothing to do with the drugs or no drugs. It had nothing to do with birthing a child uh, out of a very small space. It really had to do with the perception and the lack of support, the feeling that there was lack of support the feelings of not being heard. And so I found that really interesting. I actually dove into the research and found a lot of quotes in this one study that was speaking to women's experiences. And they actually have different quotes about the women in different circumstances still experiencing the same types of trauma. 
from completely different experiences. So here are some of the quotes. Uh, This one woman says, I begged not to have a C-section. Neither I nor my baby were in distress or danger, but because the doctor was ready to go home, he did a terrible section and resulted in almost a year of recovery. Another woman says, I was steamrolled with unnecessary interventions and didn't get to speak with the doctor about my options, risks versus benefits. I felt like the nurses, doctors, and hospital only did what was in their best interest, not mine. It was a nightmare. Another woman says, I feel like I was being told I was silly for thinking I was in labor and that this awful pain was nothing to be worried about. My opinion was dismissed and ignored as I was just a first timer. And so that kind of speaks to my experiences, feeling like I uh, I wasn't in labor when I actually was, and that because my pain didn't elicit a specific response by myself or a specific sound over the phone, that I wasn't actually in labor. Another woman says, in particular... Being in labor was a contested area. Women's perceptions of being in labor were based on their embodied experience, whereas care providers' perceptions were based on clinical findings. For example, one woman was considered to not be in labor because her cervix was not dilating according to the care provider's expectations. And again, that was with me. Um, My cervix wasn't dilating, and that was due to scar tissue. And unfortunately, they hadn't picked that up or asked me about that in my history. So that ended up being something that wasn't actually in my medical records for the hospital to know about beforehand. Another woman said, um, I was going into premature labor and the midwife palpated during a contraction and stated that I was not having them. Eventually went into labor as they ignored me, although not traumatic in medical terms, felt completely disgruntled that my journey was not taken on my own merits and completely ignored as a woman during labor. Another woman said she was told to stop pushing, uh, being told what to do when my body was telling me different. Uh, Women described how equipment tethered or tied them to the bed during labor. I was tethered to the bed during induction. I was tied to the bed and forced to lay on my back. Women experienced being forced into birth positions um, and providers basically putting them into positions that they were uncomfortable with birthing. The interesting thing I found was a negative experience in childbirth was associated, like I said, with post-traumatic stress disorder, so PTSD, a disruption to interpersonal relationships, dysfunctional, sorry, dysfunctional maternal infancy bonding, a reduction in the rates of exclusive breastfeeding, inappropriate utilization of maternal and newborn care services, fear of childbirth, and an increased desire for an elective cesarean section in future pregnancies. And I can actually relate to that uh, personally because being told that I was going to possibly have to have an emergency C-section as a result of what was going on in my labor and delivery, I actually had said multiple times that I would rather just go into a C-section, just get the baby out, get them out safe, let's just do it now. I've been in labor for so long, I don't even want to do this anymore. And it was actually thanks to the OB that I had, he was incredible. And he looked at me at one point dead in the eye and said, listen, vaginas heal better than stomachs. Let's try our best to get this baby out vaginally. Um, And so that kind of gave me motivation to, okay, we can do this just a little bit more. And then he proceeded to come in about four or five hours before my baby was born and say, okay, you're, you're progressing. We don't have to do a C-section we can move this towards a vaginal delivery and let's have this baby by lunchtime. And that was kind of motivation to me to say, okay, I don't have to stop. I can keep going. So although there was some negative experiences, I didn't have um, that fully negative experience, but I do understand wanting to just kind of get it over with 
with um, over wanting to deal with the threat of having to have a C-section instead of having a baby naturally. And so that's kind of looking at the research and kind of piecing apart my experiences and a lot of women's experiences and the importance of of dealing with childbirth trauma and making sure that women have a positive experience and because of the ramifications that it can have on, again, not only just post-birth feelings, not only just postpartum depression, but interpersonal familial relationships, relationships with partners, relationships with um, in-laws, sisters, brothers, and the relationship with your child and the bond with your child. And we all know the importance of breastfeeding and the benefits to a child, uh, to the mother-child bond, and all of those sorts of amazing things. If you follow me on Instagram, you know that I do not breastfeed, and that is a whole other topic of conversation. But making sure that we actually intervene early might increase these uh, the possibility that a woman might breastfeed their infant as opposed to maybe not wanting to try it all or being completely unable to due to a lot of physical and mental circumstances. So let's just look at the science of labor and kind of talk about what what's actually going on in each section because a lot of women talk about uh, healthcare providers not believing them and, and not understanding that they're in labor when they know full well they're in labor and telling them not to push when they should push. And so let's just look at the science and really kind of take it back so we can be well informed about what's actually going on. So labor itself is a series of continuous progressive contractions of the uterus, which help the cervix to dilate, which means open, and to a face, which means thin, allowing for the fetus to move through the birth canal. Labor usually starts about two weeks or so before the estimated date of delivery. So two weeks before or after. So if your due date is the 14th of the month, it could happen at the beginning of the month to the end of the month. That's usually when labor happens. No one knows what exactly triggers the onset of labor, which is really interesting. Um, and if you're past your date of delivery, you can have meconium in your placenta, which I told you that I did, um, but I was actually six days early. So it doesn't have to be, uh, you don't have to be late to have meconium. Uh, meconium can happen if the baby is in distress. If you do have a stressful labor, you can have meconium. And so looking at the stages of labor, the first stage begins when your uterine contractions are in sufficient frequency, intensity, and duration to bring about that effacement and dilation of the cervix. So false labor will be these random contractions that don't really have any rhyme or reason. They're really not productive. They're kind of your uterus practicing what to do, and they're not really moving anything forward. They're not causing you to dilate and to efface. The first stage of labor is that initial phase um, we have the first stage having initial or latent, we have active labor, and we have the transitional phase. And the second stage of labor is full dilation of the cervix through the delivery of the baby. So this is the baby's head coming out. This ends with the delivery of the baby. The third stage is after the delivery of the baby, and it ends with the delivery of the placenta. So the times of these stages can actually vary depending on the woman. And the fourth stage, you might still be getting contractions. You can still be bleeding, um, but this is for the first hour of birth. And this is basically when we have to still be managed so that we make sure that hemorrhages aren't happening and all those sorts of things. So during pregnancy, your cervix is lengthened and it serves as a barrier. So nothing kind of gets out, nothing gets in. Um, it really has to support the weight of a growing baby. And then a cervix that isn't ripe, there should be no softness. It is firm and it's not thin. When labor begins, it starts to shorten, it starts to thin. And this is what's going to allow the baby to come out and go down the birth canal. 
The second stage is going to be when the baby's head actually enters the birth canal. So early labor, if you've heard about centimeters dilated, early labor can be anywhere from zero to four centimeters dilated. Um, the rate of the dilation is going to be slow. You might go less than one centimeter an hour. You might get mild contractions every five to 20 minutes, lasting 30 to 45 seconds. And that's going to be accompanied possibly by frequent urination, backache, other kind of cramping sensations. Basically, we um, this is kind of the quote-unquote textbook normal. If I'm relating it to myself and I'm telling you about my labor, um, I was about one centimeter dilated and my contractions were every two and a half minutes. So you can see how women can present very differently. Not every woman is textbook and going to present textbook with their uh, labor. So that's another reason why healthcare providers really need to take into account the woman's experience on top of all of the clinical signs. Because for me, taking into account my experience looking at the signs, which were only one centimeter dilated, but 90% effaced, would lead a, a healthcare provider, which it did, to say, oh, this is interesting that you're only one centimeter effaced, or sorry, one centimeter dilated and 90% effaced. Let's look a little bit deeper into this. And they would have found that scar tissue, which they ended up finding. So it is important to look at your experience as the woman as well. And so your first stage of active labor, active labor is when you're four to eight centimeters totally dilated. The rate of the cervical dilation is going to be faster here. And these moderate contractions are going to be every two to five minutes lasting 45 seconds to a minute. Um, and these are now stronger. This is when you should go to the hospital. This is when they tell you to go to the hospital. When they're about five minutes apart, they're getting stronger and they're really consistent. Um, the more you can walk and move around, the faster things go. And this is why when I got to the hospital, they told me to go for a walk for two hours so that they could guarantee that I would progress. Because obviously, like I said, the epidural reduces that progression. Then you're eight to 10 centimeters dilated. And this is when you have those strong contractions and you basically have your baby. When you're fully dilated at 10 centimeters, you can start pushing. And that's kind of that. So at the end of the day, it is important to understand the uh, physiological changes that happen in labor and delivery, but it's also important to look at your own experiences and review your own experiences. Uh, for me, kind of getting through the trauma that I dealt with for labor and delivery really had a lot to do with uh, talking through it with a lot of people going through the different scenarios and outcomes, knowing that things were okay. Um, a lot of times when things aren't okay, that can be a lot more difficult to kind of get, get your, um, wrap your head around and help you talk through it. Um, and getting through it in that way was really, really helpful, but also getting that physical trauma. I actually found a lot of benefit in seeing a pelvic floor physiotherapist and working through a lot of that physical trauma, seeing a massage therapist, um, keeping myself healthy and focusing on myself because your hormones are out of control um, after. So I found getting the right practitioners was important. I was part of a postpartum group, uh, my midwives. So if you don't have that, if you're not with a midwife, try to find some sort of talk group, new mom group, postpartum group, see your naturopathic doctor, uh, see a psychiatrist or a social worker or some other sort of therapist that you find helpful. Like I said, the pelvic floor physiotherapist was extremely, extremely helpful in helping me work through a lot of that physical trauma. Um, but the conclusions in the research that I found overall found that childbirth trauma is a global issue. 
measures are required to address it, we need to start talking about it. A lot of people feel guilt and shame around their childbirth experiences. A lot of women go home and they assume that just because they have a healthy baby, that means that they should be just grateful. They should be fully grateful that they have this baby even here. And a lot of women can't get pregnant and a lot of babies die during childbirth and a lot of babies die in pregnancy. And while that is true, that does not take away or um, invalidate your experiences and you're still allowed to feel trauma and you're still allowed to grieve uh, a labor and delivery that you didn't plan for you're still allowed to work through those feelings and maybe not feel 100 amazing about it and um, the recommendations of this research and my general conclusions from looking at all of this and this topic in general is that uh, maternity service provisions need to be uh, created by the world health organizations we need to develop promote and sustain respectful woman-centered care care providers require training and support to understand value and practice in ways that optimize psychological outcomes for women um, so that's my spiel on childbirth that is my personal experience and i really want you if you are struggling if you know someone who's struggling reach out speak to your providers whether that's a naturopathic doctor a midwife an ob like i said a therapist a, um, a physiotherapist a pelvic physiotherapist a massage therapist make sure that you're getting yourself taken care of because like i said we want to make sure that we are addressing mom's health and that in turn helps with baby's health everyone is so concerned about how baby's doing which is obviously so 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 important but we need to also be concerned about how mom is doing postpartum especially if she had a less than ideal childbirth experience or something that she didn't anticipate it is really important to address these things if you have any questions concerns or anything that you want to share with me feel free to send an email laura at laurapeiffer.com you can reach me on instagram at dr laura nd and as always if you can head to wherever you listen to podcasts um, give me a review rate review and subscribe and thank you for listening we'll talk next time